Let us take up our Bibles and turn again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And my text is really the first seven verses. I will not be rereading those verses. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard? that I have not done in it. Wherefore, when I looked for it, it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears saith the Lord of hosts, Of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp, and the vial, and the tabret, and the pipe, and the wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, He that rejoiceth shall descend into it. 
and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope, that say, Let him make speed, and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and as the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows, arrows are sharp, and all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion, and they shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day... They shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looked unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. So far the reading of God's inspired word. Did you notice, beloved, that the prophet is determined to sing a song. It is an emphatic determination. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved. In other words, he's saying there, I will sing indeed. The prophet, in order to present his theme and to gain an audience, an audience that will hear him, assumes the role of a folk singer. He begins with a true song, 
but soon passes over to a lamentation and an explanation of it. I want you to notice that the prophet's song is really the song of his beloved. His friend is God. Abraham was a friend of God. The Bible speaks of the friend of the bridegroom. You see, Isaiah is very jealous for God's cause, and he can count on his God as his friend. It's God's song. And it is a parable. A parable just like the parable, boys and girls, that Nathan told to King David when he was walking in sin. And it was a parable that David would hear. And his righteous indignation is risen, that man deserves to die. And when he has said that, <coughs> then the prophet points out to him, that's you. You are the man. So now in Isaiah, verse 3, Isaiah has concluded his role of a singer. He brings the story to an end. And then he begins with two verses, verse 3 and then verse 5, now. Now make a judgment. Judge, I pray you. David, after passing his indignation on the man in the parable, passed condemnation on himself. Yes, he heard what Nathan said, thou art the man. And David said, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I have sinned against the Lord. Wonderful. Repentance. But when Isaiah confronts the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of Judah, when he says, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, There's silence. There's silence. There's two questions. Has the Lord done all that he should have for the vineyard? Judge. And number two, did the vineyard bring forth wild grapes, sour grapes, grapes that are good for nothing? They're silent. Boys and girls, perhaps it's kind of like when dad or mom come with a question to you. Who did this? You hardly dare to look up at dad and mom and you don't say anything. Israel doesn't say anything. Because that really is an acknowledgement, isn't it? That the Lord had done all that he should have done. That the Lord had dealt with them in abundant grace and mercy. And that they themselves had rebelled against him and that they were worthless sinners. Oh, the question, what more could I have done 
It would be a grave misunderstanding to suggest that God is limited in his ability. He had done the best he could. It's excellent. He is sovereign. Oh, he could have saved every one of them, but he doesn't. The question that is asked, what more could I have done, is to simply manifest the abundant and the overwhelming grace of God to his church. No fault or blame can be attached to what he has done for his church. He has been faithful to his promises. Those who hear the song must acknowledge that fact. The blame is all theirs. Notice with me the song of the vineyard. First of all, the loving and tender care expended. Second of all, there is then the verdict. Wild grapes. And the rest of the pericope that we have read is God's judgment. God's deserved judgment. Let's begin with the loving and tender care expended by God. The vineyard there is a figure of the church. The prophet begins, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful field. That well-beloved that Isaiah is talking about is Isaiah's God. And in verse 7, very plainly, the vineyard is the house of Israel. It is the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And the context of this song was the announcement of severe judgment and the spirit of burning. In Isaiah 3, verse 4, we read... And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. Judgment. God's work of purifying the daughters of Zion of washing away their filth. It was an announcement of judgment upon the church of the Old Testament. That judgment must come. The wickedness of the wicked must be purged out of Zion. For you will remember the theme of Isaiah's prophecy is found there in chapter 1, verse 27. Israel is redeemed with judgment. In other words, that is the means of salvation. God is not going to let that wickedness continue in his church, but he is going to burn out the carnal, the wicked, out of his church. And through that judgment, his church is saved, delivered. Beloved, if we look to the end of the world, that's exactly the salvation of the church. 
Now we have to contend with sin all around us and even within us. Just as Israel stood there in the midst of all those heathen nations all around, how much they needed the Lord's loving care and tender care and mercies. But however severe that judgment that goes forth towards God's people, there will be a remnant preserved. Who is it? It is everyone who was written among the living in Jerusalem. We read in chapter 4, they are called holy. They will be preserved even as God purges out the dross. Pictured is a vineyard that is the whole of the Old Testament church. And that's why we sing from Psalm 80, because Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16, speak of that same vineyard. So way before, the psalmist has a song about it, and now Isaiah brings it to pass in his judgment. Let me read those verses briefly. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with a shadow of it and the bows thereof were like goodly cedars. She sent out her bows unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they that pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou hast made strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. What a song. Not only of the Old Testament church, but Jesus in many different places takes up that very song in the New Testament. And of course you have, as the ladies studied just two weeks ago, John chapter 15, the first 17 verses. The only difference, the only difference is that in the Old Testament, the church is presented as an entire vineyard, whereas the church in the New Testament is presented under the figure of a single vine. Christ Jesus, the vine, and we're the branches. Pictured is the church as a living organism. What does that mean? There are different pictures of the church in the Bible. The one is of a building, a magnificent temple. Stones laid upon stones, but that's not living, is it? But when you have a picture of a garden or of a field or now of a vineyard, there's life flowing from the ground, from the nourishment, from the roots, up through the vine to the branches with wonderful fruit. The church is pictured here as an organism, as a whole. 
And it's to that church that this song is all about. He sings it to God. The vine that thou plantest. It has those who are carnal in it. It has hypocrites in it. And it has you and me who, although we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we love God, there is so much straw also in our works, isn't there? None of us, not one of us, is without sin. How does God in his song address this church? Notice every Sunday, how does God address us? And what does this pastor say? He does not say, you who believe in Jesus Christ and the rest of you who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Of course not. He addresses the church. Christ says, my beloved, I love you. Even though there are the carnal in the church or the hypocrites or even though in the Corinthian church there was much trouble and strife and division, God calls his church beloved, saints. And that is the way God is addressing now his church in the Old Testament, and that is the way he addresses us still today, as his church. The church that he planted there in the land of Canaan. He addresses there not only the ten tribes of Israel that left, who said, what part have we in David? What part have we in the Christ that is promised? He addresses them as well as he addresses the daughters of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah. And in that order, because probably it is first of all in Jerusalem that there were the prophets and there were the priests and there were the kings that were ungodly. That wickedness carried on in Jerusalem and the rest of Judah doesn't do anything about it either, but they follow along with them. What a terrible, terrible picture. What does he say then about his beloved vineyard? Isaiah 5, verse 2, the Lord planted or my beloved hath planted a vineyard. Jeremiah carries the same message. He's a little bit later than what Isaiah is, about 150 years later. Isaiah is speaking about 150 years before the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah speaks while God's people go into captivity and are there. And in Jeremiah 2, verse 21, we read, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. I want you to notice those words a moment. That he has planted the choicest vine. Don't we have there the doctrine of election? It is not the church that chose to go to God or to be his vineyard, but God, of his sovereign grace, has chose Israel. 
not because she was better than all the other nations or greater than, than the other nations. She was small. Abraham and his family worshipped not only God, but also other idols, so that you later on have Laban's gods that Rachel steals or tries to steal on her donkey. There's nothing in Abraham, there is nothing in any of, our, of the Old Testament church for the reason that God chose her, but his own sovereign love and mercy. A choicest vine. And it is a choice vine because the life of Christ Jesus is in that vine. That is, Christ is in her loins. Christ is going to be born from her. Christ is really that root then in the ground, that little sprout that brings forth this glorious church. And because the life of Christ is in her, that vine cannot totally ever die. She becomes very, very small. And from the Bible reading that we have here and in Psalm 80, cut down and burned, but there's still that little sprout that comes forth. That sprout that will come forth and even in others, in other nations, instead of amongst Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah. Christ is the spiritual root of that vine. And oh, that vineyard is well cared for, isn't she? Notice she is planted in a fruitful hill. That fruitful hill that she is planted is the rich grace of God. How fruitful? Look at the land of Canaan. That's the type. Boys and girls, do you remember, and we read of it in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, of how when the Israelites came to the borders of Canaan, they sent out 12 spies, didn't they? And the spies go throughout the land, and they finally come back. And two of them give a good report, and ten of them an evil report. Oh, they all agree that it is a fruitful land. What do we read about it? That two men on a staff would carry one bunch of grapes. So abundant, so large. And they carry back pomegranates and figs. Oh, the land was very fruitful. The two spies say it is exceedingly good land. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. But that's where they end, the two spies and the ten spies, for then the ten spies say, but, but the cities have big walls all around them. And the, we have met the giants that grow there, and we are like grasshoppers in front of them. Surely we are no match 
let's go back. Let's go back to Egypt. And they even choose someone to take him back. And while the two spies comment on the goodness of the land, they say, if, if we serve the Lord, the Lord will go with us, and the Lord will win the battles, and the Lord will give us this goodly land flowing with milk and honey. So the type there, type really of God's grace and God's goodness and God's blessings that they and the church today still enjoy. Have you thought, boys and girls, of the blessing that God has given to you in giving you, putting you in Christian homes? Not all of us have had that privilege, do we? Go out in the mission fields, or we have others that come and join our church and their home is a sorry excuse. Terrible. But God is good. God gives grace. And yes, when those who are brought up in Christian homes leave, God brings others in from the nations, doesn't he? Who are excited about what they hear. Planted in a fruitful hill. Oh yes, when Isaiah is bringing this out, the Israelites that hear him, they've seen all these hills in Israel, the sides, the slopes of the hills where the sun is shining, filled with these vineyards. Vineyards planted. What tender, what compassionate care God gives to his vineyard. The land is tilled by God. It's a hard ground, probably something along that hard clay that my dad had a farm in. You could hardly get a plow through it. Now, I know nowadays they have no till, but he has to loosen up that soil so that that little vine with its roots can spread out and can grow from sea to sea, from the river unto the sea. So, the vineyard has been broken up and the stones are removed from it. There's an Arab proverb that when God created, there was an angel that flew over Palestine with two sacks full of rocks. Those two sacks of rocks were to be <coughs> distributed throughout all the world. But one of those sacks broke. And so half of the stones that are in the world, half of them are right there in Palestine. So the back-breaking work, not of, of only breaking up the soil, but taking all the time the rocks out of it. And they keep on coming up from underneath. And so every year those rocks would have to be taken out. Those rocks are taken then by the owner of the vineyard to make a hedge around it, to make a wall around it so that the wild animals do not come in and eat it or the wild boars would not trample it underfoot. So there, there's a hedge of stone and even then around behind that a fence, a fence made of these kind of branches that have all kinds of prickers on them. When I was in Northern Ireland, that was a gift that they gave to me when I was leaving. One of these kind of, you, they made a cane out of it, but 
the hedges are these kind of things to keep out wild animals from trampling and also those who would steal the grapes as they passed by. Makes me think of my daughter's garden. She planted a garden the last two years. The first year it was nicely fenced in. This past year the barn was burned so the fences weren't there and the two goats that they have were running all around the yard and yes, also trampling the garden and eating the plants before they would mature. There's the picture. What tender care. Choice vine taken out of Egypt in a very fertile hill The soil dug up carefully, the stones all removed, a hedge around it, a fence around it, and then a watchtower there. Oh, this owner of the vineyard is going to watch over his vineyard continually. As that vineyard pictures Israel with those heathen nations around it, yes, the Lord was watching after his church. So there is that wine tower, there is that watchtower and a wine press. This is a rock, a stone that has to be chiseled out so that there is a trough. So that as the grapes there are grown and are made into a wine, this is not eating kind of grapes, these are grapes that you'd make a wine. They'd be stomped by the feet and the juice would run then through this trough that was carefully chiseled out. And so now you only wait and watch. The vine has been planted and it is green, it is, has growth, and one expects these wonderful, large, sweet grapes to be growing on it. Watchfulness of God, the preservation of God. What does that all picture? Does not it picture that God put them in the land of Canaan? And there in the land of Canaan, there was first of all the tabernacle, and later on there was the temple in the midst of God's people, God dwelling with them. And there was the altar of burnt offerings, the blood that was spilled day after day of lambs and of oxen. There were the prophets, there were the priests, there were the kings that knew God There was the promises made to Abraham and to all the descendants afterwards. 4,000 years of promises. And that fruitful field with a vineyard also pictures the church today. It pictures the church of Jesus Christ and God's grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ giving to her, as we heard this morning, his word, giving to her the sacraments, giving to her the preaching of the word from week to week, giving to her Christian discipline so that when there are those who are wayward, they are corrected rather than allowed to continue in their sins. Oh, beloved, do you see all the labor of God on his church? What more could the Lord have done? 
That brings me to my second point, the verdict. He looked for good fruit, that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Another translation would be rotten grapes. Uh, more literal translation would be stinking grapes. Small and bitter, not good at all for making wine. There's no use for them. You see, beloved, there is always fruit in one's life. There's always fruit, good or bad. And we will all be judged one day for the work that is done, whether it be good or evil. There was fruit on the vineyard, but not the good fruit that should have been expected because of God's grace, but rather because of their rebellion, disobedience, opposite of what is expected. There was the fruit of sin, of disobedience, and of death. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but beheld oppression. Judgment there means that God's people cared for each other. That the poor, that the widow would be well taken care of, but instead every man was against his, every other man there was oppression of the poor. And that's a good designation of the church, the poor of the earth. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Oh, what opposite of righteousness is filthiness, impurity, a walk in sin. That's what God's people were bringing forth. And it says that a cry went up to God, verse 7. From all of this corruption that is taking place in that Old Testament church, a cry came forth from that that reached heaven and God heard it. And that's why this chapter ends with the six different woes that are called upon Israel and also upon Judah. Verses 8 through 10, a covetous people. Verses 11 through 17, woe to an unbelieving people. Verse 20, woe upon a truth-perverting people. Verse 21, a woe on a people who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, a woe for a justice-perverting people. What a sad sight. Stinking grapes, good for nothing. Where there is, beloved, great privilege, there is great responsibility. Judah and Israel had great privilege. The Lord took them out of Egypt and graciously he set them in a land flowing with milk and honey, gave them the prophets and the kings and the priests, the temple service, the promises. What a responsibility. 
and you and I. You and I who have been raised all of our life in the church. A good reformed church. A church that's always reforming according to the word of God. What a privilege, as I said earlier to the boys and girls, to be in Christian homes, to be minister, members of this church, to go to a Christian school, but also then a great responsibility. When one looks at Israel at that time when Isaiah is speaking, singing the song, all the other heathen nations around them each had their own false god, one false god for each of those nations. And what about God's people? No, they're not satisfied with God, but they've got to take the gods of all the nations around them and serve them all. Bitter, stinking grapes. The cry goes up to God and God hears it. But beloved, let's not stay in the Old Testament. Let's move to the church today. Because our text is speaking of the church as in an organic sense, then and also still today. So it's not coming to persons or individuals, but the historically existing church of Christ Jesus. And that church is never pure in form here on the earth. Never. She's not pure because there are hypocrites in the church. Their work in the church might look exemplary. They might be elders in the church and yet doing detestable, abusive things in their homes or to others in the church. And that's hidden because we can't see the heart. And we don't see the activities that take place away from us. There is the carnal element who hear the word, maybe are raised in the church all of their life and then turn their back on it. And the more they hear the preaching, the more they are hardened in their sins. But the church is never pure in its form here on earth also because even the true branches are not perfectly holy and are not without sin. Not you, not I. So we see in the Old Testament and we see still in the New Testament a lot of apostasy in the church. Yes, wonderful gifts given in the Old Testament church and wonderful gifts still given today in the church. But there is a mixed company. There is the elect and there is the reprobate. There was the nominal Israel and there is the nominal church still today. What more could I have done? There's a judgment that's called for, as I said earlier, and this is my third point, it better be, the ju a judgment called for. Because verse 3 says, and now, O inhabitants, judge, I pray you. And now notice also in verse 5 it says it. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. First of all, the people are supposed to be judging, and they're silent. They're silent because they're guilty. And finally, after that silence, God says, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I do. There is nothing more I could have done. I've done everything in my grace for the church. There's no fault with God. But the church 
has brought forth wild grapes. What else could have been done? You see, the church as a whole had received wonderful grace and gifts and care. It's not the case that God is now disappointed or that God is deceived, that somehow that God thought it would be better. We have another parable like that too, isn't it, where the landowner rents out his farm and he sends servants to them year after year to collect the rent and they are killed and then he says, I'll send my son. Surely they will honor my son. Now, a parable, you have to be careful that you don't push it too far because there's going to be elements in the story that you cannot be related. God is never disappointed with what he has done or what takes place in his church. The silence of the people means they are guilty and God will speak. And what will God do? There will be judgment because of the unbelief and the wickedness. The ungodly are guilty Outwardly, they enjoyed all of the riches of the church. And that's why there are the six woes pronounced upon that Old Testament church. And that is taken care of throughout history. For you'll remember back, if you go back to Numbers 13 and 14, the people want to go back to Egypt. They murmur and they complain, and God says, I'll cut them off. I'll cast them all off and I'll start with you, Moses. And Moses pleads for them. God doesn't do that. What happens once they are in the land? Many, many times they sin and God brings the enemies against them to chastise them. Not only in the wilderness, but now because they have sinned so grievously, The ten tribes are already gone, and Judah is also going to go into captivity. And after they come back, again they walk into sin and outward worship, and there's a 400 years of silence. Just as the Lord said, with that vineyard he would cause it not to rain, so also in the church, God will, with a wicked church, hold back his prophets. You don't want to hear the word of God. You want to hear the ideas of men. I'll give you those kind of men. Men who condone sins. Sins that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. For 400 years, no prophetic word of the Lord at all. And finally, taken away. Cut down, the church leaves Israel, the Jews, in A.D. 70 by Rome. And in the church where she is unfaithful, God will cause it to sprout other places, won't he? Watch the church as she grows going westward. From Europe, where there were the churches, the seven churches of Asia, to Europe, and then to America, and now over to Korea or to the Philippines. Yes, where the prophets are stoned and are killed, God will take away the prophets, won't he? And don't we see that today? With the stress in the ministry, we don't have the young men that we need to fill the pulpits. God takes away his word. 
So what is our calling? You say this was a long time ago about that vineyard, yet it's about the church today. What about the remnant? Well, there was a remnant that came back from Babylon, wasn't there? There was a remnant of Israel for old Anna who comes to the temple, is from the tribe of Asher. And there is still a remnant today. And what is our calling? Well, our calling, first of all, beloved, is to sing. Sing a song. To sing the beloved song. Sing the song to God. Yes, God has wonderfully cared for and tenderly cares for his church. No fault with God at all. Sing. Sing that song to God and sing that song to your children. Let them know how important that church is. It's precious to God. He loves her. Second of all, our calling is to walk circumspectly. Woe unto us who have received so much. How much greater the responsibility. How sad to see those who have sat underneath the rich word of God turn their back and to leave. Walk circumspectly. Be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Thirdly, Today there is reformation by separating. That wasn't possible in the Old Testament. There was only one nation of Israel, wasn't there? But we have to find and attend that church, the true church that preaches the gospel most purely, where the sacraments are administered properly and where there is Christian discipline. And the end of the song is finally glory, isn't it? Oh, the glory of our God, he has a vineyard, and he will always have a vineyard that he loves and that will produce fruit to God's glory. Oh, the marvelous church of Christ Jesus. Through judgment on the apostate, he casts them out and causes a remnant to remain. It's all grace, isn't it? Tasting God's grace and the blessings and the rain that he sends down on us in his word, the sacraments, discipline. Israel is redeemed through judgment. One day there will be no more carnal Christians. One day there will be no more hypocrites. And one day there will not even be you and I with all of our own sins and troubles and trials redeemed perfectly, singing a song to God forever. Amen. Father in heaven, what a message to thy church. What a warning to thy church. Oh, the blessed rains that come upon that vineyard that by thy grace, and by thy grace alone, produces large, juicy grapes for good wine, the wine of the kingdom. Amen.